Hello, welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Lomi. Uh, this episode is brought to you by audibletrial.com slash headonhistory to get your free audiobook and support this podcast. Head on over there and download a free audiobook uh, and sign up. I hope you are enjoying this season so far. This is our last episode of the season, and then we're going to be taking a break um, of, I believe, nine weeks until season three. So we'll be back in the winter with uh, season four. I mean, we'll be back at season four in the winter. Uh, I haven't quite decided whether I'm going to do Empires of Faith, which is a world history based off of my course that I teach. It's uh, looking at empires and religion and how they intersect with one another in the pre-modern world, so from the ancient world until the early modern. So it, it would be 10 episodes looking at the riot from, from Sumerian empires, from Akkad, all the way down to the Ottoman Empire. Um, or if I will do uh, this a war on terror season, where I will look at the history of the war on terror, it would be heavily focused on the politics of the U.S. and the Middle East, the intersecting of foreign policy with domestic policy. So it'll be a more of a, dem- uh, of a kind of political-oriented uh, season. I haven't decided which one, but let me know if you have a particular inclination that you'd want to hear. Um, I'll do both of them. It just depends on when I do it first or second. And you can hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, uh, both on Instagram and on Twitter, or use the hashtag Head on History. Let me know your thoughts, and uh, that can help make me make my decision. So today, what I want to talk about is Islam in South America. We talked about North America, specifically the United States, last episode. And I want to wrap up with uh, South America, specifically Brazil. And I want to talk about... Uh, a rebellion that happened known as the Malay Revolt. Unfortunately, it's called a revolt, but um, I think it's a particularly good indication of the relationship of Islam in the New World, uh, and I think it does a lot to kind of bring in the themes of the last couple episodes into focus. So Islam was really brought over to South America, just like it was in North America, with the slave trade. So we have it as early as the 16th century. There is some indication, again, that it might have been a little bit earlier, that Muslims off of the Barbary Coast might have been involved, that there's also potential uh, pirating. There's also relationship to um, the migration post the Reconquista. So there's a lot of uh, evidence of it being there quite early. But the recorded evidence that we have is probably around from the 16th century. Islam was already in Africa for several Several centuries by this time, particularly among those areas that uh, we're going to see the transatlantic tra- slave trade take off, that is West Africa, the, the the coast particularly. So we see in places like, like Senegambia and places like the Hausa people, the Nago people, the Yoruba people, all of them have large um, Muslim populations. And those are the populations that make up what who are transplanted in Brazil. We see the Hausa people, the Nago people, the Yoruba group of the Yoruba people, and the Mantinka people in particular being uh, part of the ethnic makeup of, of African slaves in Brazil. Part of this is also contextualized uh, in the history of Africa itself. The Sokoto Caliphate, which was 
in the region was destabilizing and collapsing, and that left a large population of Hausa slaves who were then taken by the transatlantic slave trade. Now, again, the slave trade in the Atlantic world was very different from the slave trade in Africa and in the Indian Ocean, where slaves in those two kind of networks were part of a social structure in which slaves existed within society, even if they were at the lowest rung of society and had the least amount of rights, they were still part of a society. Whereas slaves in the New World were very much in the line of chattel slavery, that they were objects to be bought and purchased. And in particular, this became a source of serious contention for Muslims in Brazil. Because of this experience, this experience of restricting movement, restricting uh, their right to worship, and the experience of this new kind of form of slavery, that is chattel slavery, very different from the slavery they would have experienced under the Sokoto Caliphate and, and other kind of uh, slavery uh, you know, institutions or, or, or organizations that participated in slavery in Africa, this was so different. And that difference has becomes a serious part of the tension. In Brazil, Muslims were known as the Malay, which comes from the Yoruba word imale. Uh, it means Muslim. And the Malay were predominantly a literate class of slaves. They were experts in writing. And among slave groups, they developed a reputation because of that writing for having certain special powers. Uh, for example, they had the ability to summon fire giants, it was said, that the Malay could conjure up these gi fire giants. Now, this likely is uh, some type of a memory of the notion of a jinn, which in the Islamic world, the jinn was a sort of the third class of entities that populated the world. There was angels made of light, humans made of clay, and jinn made of smokeless fire, a race of invisible beings, of sort of psychic entities that existed side by side with humans in their own villages and tribes and nations and whatnot. And they could be a source of power and a source of fear. Uh, Muslim uh, practitioners of like magic and whatnot would try to invoke jinn, while Muslim humans Healers would try to ex exercise and remove jinn. They very much form, they're very much similar to the notion, of the Mediterranean notion of a daimon, uh, which becomes uh, eventually transfused or transformed into demon in the medieval Christian world, indicating evil spirit. But the Bible also has this notion of a diamond or a demon in which they're not always evil. Some are evil, some are troublesome, some are kind of neutral. That This is a broader kind of Mediterranean, Near Eastern experience. We find the notion of the jinn very common in places like Petra. We find similar notions of genius and other notions of spirits, both in the ancient Rome and in ancient Greece. And so the jinn kind of fit into that category of spirits, um, not necessarily outright demons, but some could be devilish and evil, and some could be uh, neutral, and some can be good. But anyways, they were associated with fire. And so this kind of reputation of the Malay with to, to kind of conjure fire giants probably is a sort of memory or remnant of this uh, earlier notion of, of a jinn. The name might have disappeared, but the concept uh, remains. The Malay were also uh, reputed to have the ability to divine the future. What they would do is uh, divination or the practice of, of divining the future was very common amongst both the Hausa and the Yoruba people. In the Yoruba world, we find the emergence of certain shell divinations uh, in which 
people would cast shells and then interpret the signs from this. This might be related to the uh, more indigenous practices, uh, binary pract divination practices in Africa. We see, for example, uh, notions today found in like Lukumina, there's like Dilegun or Ifa or Hakata, these kind of notions of divination really rooted in a binary system of, of ones and twos that then create figures and have meanings and associations so we find that, that type of divination amongst the yoruba while amongst the malay there's a divination with a rock and dende dende is a type of uh, palm oil in which uh, the palm oil would be poured over this kind of black stone and uh, divining would happen off of it um, as well as they were associated with the ability to craft talismans in this way, they were very much related to the experience of African Muslims in North America and in the United States. These talismanic or amuletic objects were uh, small charm pouches, which involved the writing of the Quran that would then be slipped into the charm pouch and worn around the arm or around the neck. And they were reputed to give the person uh, magical powers or make them even bulletproof or safe from harm. In Bahia, we we have, even have examples of uh, certain mythic figures associated with Islam. We have a young boy by the name of Ali or Ali Baba, who was, uh, would preach and he would heal people and he was believed to be a kind of a spiritual reincarnation. This likely was probably a unique expression of Shia Islam in Bahia, which leads us to kind of think that these early expressions of Islam were really a fusion of African Islam with what they could salvage in the New World. So we see, for example, with the, the existence of this sort of Ali Baba figure, that it's possible that this was the remnant of a memory of Shia Islam, that there was, okay, there was this figure of, uh, named Ali in Shia Islam, and he was a spiritual leader, and so that in reinterpretation of it within the Bayan context uh, transformed it into what it is, in the same way that the jinn being transformed into fire giants. So what we see is we see a transmission, but somewhere along the line, there is also a transformation in which the all these kind of Islamic concepts are reinterpreted and, and kind of expressed in a new historical, social, cultural context and that is the, the context of uh, Brazil. And as I noted, I mentioned Bahia here, and most of the Muslims did settle in Bahia where they carved out a series of practices. Like Muslims in North America, they created those charms, and so they ended up having a sort of business, if you will, building the kind of social capital that they needed, as well as literal capital, to carve out some level of independence. And so what ended up happening is that the Malay Muslims became ritual experts that people turned to for healing, for herbology, for talisman making, etc. And people would come and pay them a small percentage or a small fee, and then they would receive some type of service or product. As a result of this, the Malay Muslims ended up developing some social authority, really kind of creating their, the, the, the kind of religious expertise that they had in Africa. If these were literate Hausa Muslims, many of them were likely preachers or local imams or religious experts. In the new community, in which the tribes are all kind of broken apart, in which they're no longer part of a singular religious community, but really have a patchwork of communities that involved some indigenous African Yoruba practices, some Congolese practices, um, some even uh, Portuguese and European practices like Catholicism uh, fused with a little bit of Islam, they had to create new sources of authority. And so becoming ritual experts vis-a-vis -vis their expertise in writing helped them to do that. It also provided them some fine 
financial opportunities that allowed them to kind of build up a little small fortune so that they could buy out and rent out places. And this all contributed to the, the Malay community heavily. On one end, this is a group of popu- group that probably had a higher literacy rate than their enslavers did. In Bahia at this time, white Europeans, uh, colonists, didn't have a particularly high literacy rate as far as we can tell. And so we have this one, a higher literate, a group that is a higher percentage of literacy experiencing a new form of slavery that is completely radically different than what they've experienced before, that is humiliating and that puts restrictions upon their religion and their religious expression. So that builds a series of resentment. While you have this resentment building on one hand, on the other hand, they're carving out new authority vis-a-vis their ability to be ritual experts and literate uh, writers of talismans, etc. And they're building some small fortune. So what they end up doing is they create private mosques. Now, this is interesting. These private mosques allow them to practice some of their Islam privately. Now, in a communal fashion with their fellow Muslims, but privately away from the prying gaze of the colonists. In other words, they were able to preserve. That allowed them to preserve some of their religious practices. So we know, for example, that they were able to celebrate Ramadan, specifically Laidlatul Qadr, that is the night of power within Ramadan. And they would uh, open their fasts with yams, and they would end Ramadan with Eid al-Fitr, with a sacrifice of a ram. In many ways, these practices intersected with kind of indigenous African practices that included communal worship, ancestor worship, but it also meant that they were able to practice something that was distinct from the indigenous practices. Even though it intersected, you know, you had animal sacrifice, you had divination, charm making, etc. You also had something that allowed them to kind of distinguish themselves. Um, And as a result of that, because of their literacy and the social capital and their ability to kind of distinguish themselves, they were able to to really proselytize and preach amongst their fellow slaves. And so they built, they converted large Nago populations in Salvador and in these kind of urban environments where they ended up renting small rooms where they could do jama'at prayer and whatnot. Now, this is fascinating for me. I find this quite interesting because what happens is that by the time the Malay revolt happens, a majority of the Muslims that are participating are actually Nago Muslims. They're Yoruba Muslims more than they are Hausa. Hausa may have been the original Muslims that were brought over, but by the time, because of this kind of historical experience of kind of carving new authority, building some type of fortune, being able to distinguish themselves, and then proselytizing and preaching, they were able to convert a large amount of people. And part of the kind of symbolic distinguishing that they did actually manifested itself visibly. form of kind of white garments and uh, which eventually becomes associated with like martial prowess and militarism, but they wear these kind of white garments and white skull caps uh, to distinguish themselves as experts, as, as Malay Muslims, as experts in, in, in kind of rituals and uh, talisman making and whatnot. Anyway, so the kind of combination of these two forces, the kind of building up on one end of social capital, of being able to kind of carve out some level of independence and autonomy uh, by, by having private uh 
places where they can meet secretly and worship and pray, uh, developing a kind of reputation as ritual experts and, and leaders within the community, alongside the building of kind of resentment towards a population that was less literate than they were, that was abusive, that was brutal. The experience of slavery was so radically different that complete transplanting from, from home led to what eventually becomes known as the Malay Revolt. Now, the Malay Revolt happens in December 25th, and it is led by Ahuna and Pacifico Likutan. Both of them are, are Muslims, and they are Muslims that are of a Hausa uh, b- background. And originally, uh, they had planned to meet in secret and lead a revolution along the same lines of the Haitian Revolution. So they were very aware of the Haitian Revolution and what had happened in Saint-Domingue, and they were aware of the kind of success of it. And many of them even indicated their awareness and inspiration by wearing necklaces that had the images of President uh, de Salines, the, the president, uh, the, the one who had declared the independence uh, of Haiti, and I'm probably mispronouncing that name horribly. But anyway, in January 1835, these people had decided that they were going to uh, lead uh, a revolution. And originally, Ahuna and Pacifico Likutan met in private, but right off the bat, something problematic happened. Vitoro Sule, who was one of the members that was meeting private and planning this entire thing out for January 25th, had just broken up with his girlfriend or wife, Sabrina de Cruz. Sabrina de Cruz came looking for his ass. <laughs> And wanted to find where Vitoro was. And so she ended up coming upon this small private meeting. She met this group of people who were conspiring. And she's like, what are you all doing? And Vitoro, you know, Vitirio being the, the, the guy that he is, and she wanted to show off to his ex, he's like, we're planning a revolution. We're going to overthrow the masters, and we're going to be the masters of the land, the new masters of the land. And uh, Sabina de Cruz uh, responded, as all exes would, she's like, shut the hell up. The only thing you're going to be the master of is the master of the whip. <laughs> Which basically meant that they were going to get their ass beat. So she left, and what she did is is kind of funny. She actually went to visit her friend, and she told all her friends. I mean, this is before the era of Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook and text messaging. And even at this moment, gossip and rumor is still being spread effectively. Literally within the night, she went and she told her friend. She's like, guess what this lame-ass loser ex of mine is doing? He's decided that he wants to have a revolution. So her friend, Sabina de Cruz's friend, ends up telling her other friend, who happens to be really close to her master, that guess what? The Malays are up to no good. They're going to plan a revolution. So by the time the revolution came about, the authorities were already aware of it, and so they had mobilized their forces. And what they did is they doubled the guard at the palace, they doubled the guard at the barracks, and then the justices sent out uh, investigators like go go to that go to that secret meeting place and find out if they're really actually 
plotting a revolt. And so the cops walk in, literally catch them red-handed. I mean, this is straight up mom walking in on you, watching some type of weird website. You know, they walk in and there they are, just look up from the table like, oh shit. So what ends up happening is that even though they had planned to do this rebellion on January 25th, they're like, well, fuck it. Everyone knows we're going to do January 24th. We're just going to go. So it became, it went from being a really well-planned revolt to just be like, screw it. Let's just do this. And so they, Leroy Jenkins, this, for anyone who's a big fan of Blizzard and the nerd world, you know what that reference is all about. If you're not, then I just sound like a lunatic. They just Leroy Jenkins the, sh- the crap out of this, and they ended up just charging out there. It started out relatively small by about like a 20 to maybe 30 people, built up to about 50. And then it ended up being uh, over several hundred people. And the first place that they go is they go actually to jail, where Pacifico Likutan, who had already been arrested, was being held. And he was a very famous Muslim preacher who had been preaching revolution and and freedom and independence. So they go to this jail to try to free him. But because the guards were already aware, they had doubled the guards. And so they fired on him. They were unable to free Pacifico Likutan. And so they withdrew. They withdrew and they regrouped. And they're like, okay. There's only one place that we can regroup. We're going to have to go outside and we're going to meet with people from outside of Salvador because Salvador ended up, too many people were were already aware. The palace has already got their guards up. They have ammunition. We don't have anything. So if we can make it outside of the city, right? If we can go to outside the city, we can meet with other Muslim groups who would come in from the outside rural areas, then we'd have a large force. But in order to do that, they would have to go to Agua de Meninos. And Agua de Meninos just happened to have a barracks really close by. And so what ends up happening is they meet up, they march to Agua de Meninos, but the barracks closes down the road and starts firing on them. This ends up just bringing the revolution to a halt. Now, it was quite a bloody revolution. They never actually were able to take any of the uh, houses or plantations or any of the institutions. They didn't take the palace. They didn't take the jail. Um, They were unable to free Pacifico Likutan, but they were able to conquer the streets and they ruled the streets. None of the soldiers were able to go out onto the streets because they would be attacked by these revolutionaries, by these rebels. And instead, they had to rely on barracksing, barracksing themselves and barricading themselves behind walls and doors and whatnot and firing onto the streets. And I think this is very indicative of, of what ends up happening, of really kind of where the kind of social dynamic exists within this region. The Malay people had carved out power and authority for themselves outside the institutions that existed. They didn't collaborate, corroborate, or work with the institutions. They tried to create something independent. And they developed an ability to work through the streets, through the cities, to develop that authority and convert other people, sending preachers out into the city to convert people who are, for example, Nago or of other religious backgrounds and whatnot. And so when the revolution came, the area where they were able to exert the most power was on the streets. These were people whose revolution was a revolution of the streets. They did not overthrow the institutions, but they managed to rule the streets for the night. Um, and I think that's very indicative of the relationship of the, the kind of power dynamics that I've been trying to talk about uh, in this episode. The out, kind of outcome of this was that 
after this, uh, the Malay group was deeply, deeply repressed and suppressed by the population, by the by the Brazilian population, by the European colonists. Um, from that moment on, the Malays were forced to convert to Catholicism. Some managed to continue their practices for a little while, but overwhelmingly, um, they were either converted to Islam or they were simply sent back. Several of the leaders were either executed or just sent back to Africa. The idea being that the Malay were just so unruly, that the Muslims were so unruly, that you they just didn't make good slaves. Oh, in many ways, this reflects what we talked about in our last episode about Muslims in North America, that there was something quite rebellious towards slavery amongst the Muslim populations, and so they ended up being kind of white, and as a result of being kind of wiped out and being rebellious and being forced to convert and coerced into conformity or eliminated, that history of Islam becomes erased itself. Those individuals disappear entirely. Um, and so even now, when we talk about Islam in Brazil, this this kind of story of the Malay revolt is a hidden story. It's a story that's not often talked about in the grand narrative of Brazil. There is no kind of mention of the Malay by many historians. And it isn't until relatively recently that historians have gone back and recovered some of these stories and lives to you know kind of tell us how they lived back then. We should also note that this was not just an outright slave rebellion, but they were also freemen that had joined the rebellion. For example, there was a man named uh, Elisbao de Corma, I probably mispronounce it, Elisbao de Corma, who was a house of freemen. He had managed to win his freedom by get, saving up his money. So it was a combination of freemen and slaves who were able to kind of forge this new life for them. Islam doesn't make another appearance in Brazil until probably uh, several decades later with the migration of Muslims from the Levant. Uh, Brazil has a very strong connection with Syrians, Lebanese, and Palestinians. And so we have there's a large Syrian, Palestinian, and Lebanese population that ends up migrating to Brazil where they uh, carve out small lives for themselves most of them going into the food industry and uh, uh, selling small hot fried goods. So in some ways also related to the hot tamale Louis story that we talked about in uh, last episode. But they are often seen as kind of foreign. They're seen as foreign transplants. And that Islam is a predominantly Levantine religion or an Arab religion that's brought over with these merchants that are setting up new lives. What ends up happening is there's a disconnect between the actual history, that is the history of the Malay people, the history of African slaves, who were many of them were Muslim, who had participated in, 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 in a Brazilian life, who had carved out their own lives in this new world. But because of this rebellion, which was unfortunately unsuccessful, but really a sign of the kind of power dynamics and the, the real history of what was going on. Because of this rebellion, that history of those Muslims gets erased and instead Islam becomes associated with, with contemporary migrants. So I hope this episode kind of connects those two histories, looking at, the, looking at saying, okay, Muslims exist in Brazil now. They came over with the Levantine migration, but it already existed. It was there before uh, immigration happened. It happened with uh, African slaves who were brought over and carved a new expression of Islam within the Brazilian context in Bahia and Salvador. And they uh, led very powerful lives. They carved out independence and fought a revolution, a rebellion. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. But that is a history that I think we, we all kind of deserve 
to know. Anyway, I'm going to end it here. Hopefully, this was an interesting episode. I wanted to keep this one a little bit shorter, um, but it really ties up both this season and the last season, or this episode and the last episode, and it really kind of uh, pulls out and, and shines a light on the kind of themes that I wanted to talk about with Islam and North America, that is, and North Islam in the New World, that is, the way that it was brought over through slavery, how it's been around for hundreds of years, not just a recent migration issue, how Muslims carved out their own expression of Islam within this region and how that unique expression also led for, to a unique character of a community and how that community rose up and fought against the chains of oppression uh, and slavery and, and, and subjugation. If you're interested in the history of Africa more broadly and specifically uh, Islam in Africa, check out my earlier episode in this season called Islam in the Maghrib, Islam in Africa, where I talk about how Africa converts to Islam. But I'm going to end it here. If you've enjoyed this this season so far please let me know don't hesitate to go over to itunes or stitcher radio and leave some feedback i would love to get five stars from y'all uh, i'd love to hear reviews i'm going to go over some of those reviews uh, uh in our next season but there's several of them that i want to give a shout out to and a special thanks so a special shout out for to bram to kdldo to hilda to Minx, to Gialie, and all my wonderful students who've also tuned in, um, to Eric, and all the wonderful people who left reviews on the uh, podcast app who've tuned into the episodes. Hopefully you enjoyed this season. Season 3 was really fun. I really wanted to kind of move away from the Middle East-centric story of Islam and, and kind of go more globally and look at the kind of other Islams that exist out there. Let me know what your thoughts are on the season. Be sure to leave a review you hit me up on social media at a-a-o-l-o-m-i and if you're interested in books learning more i've got some great recommendations for you uh, in particular i think uh, some of them are, are books that i discussed uh last episode particularly the the slaves of allah book which i think is uh, a great fantastic fantastic book um and I think covers uh, Servants of Allah, I'm sorry, uh, Sylvian, Sylvian Diouf's book, Servants of Allah, African Muslims Enslaved in the America's 15th Century uh, Edition or 15th uh, Anniversary Edition. Great book. It covers both North America and it covers South America. A lot of the kind of information that I drew from comes from Sylvian uh, A. Diouf's book, Great, great book, resource. I'm also going to give a uh, website recommendation. Check out the work of Margarita Rosa. She's a PhD student in comparative literature at Princeton University. And she's been looking at specifically African Muslims in the Americas and looking particularly at the kind of documentation that they left behind. So she did this fantastic uh, piece for yakeeninstitute.org. I think it's an Islamic website. It's Y A Q E E and institute.org and you can look up uh, Margarita Rosa there called Duas of the Enslaved the Malay Slave Rebellion in Bahia Brazil that looks at the prayers and that, that uh, were left behind and the kind of written documentation and the evidence of the rebellion so check out her work I think the combination of the two Margarita Rosa's work along with the book that I recommended are great great resources anyways thank you for tuning in for to this season and this episode for making this uh, season so much fun and so exciting and for all your support I hope Hope to see you all in a few weeks with season four. And remember, stay smart, beautiful history nerds.